Welcome, ladies and gentle nerds, to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, where we are still celebrating Wonder Woman Kamala Harris, the first female vice president of the United States. No matter your political persuasion, girls across the nation deserve to know that their gender will never stop them from achieving their goals. Talking Wonder Woman, today we're going to have a deep, deep dive into Wonder Woman 1984. Before that, though, let's check in with some nerd news. Chris, what do you got? So Chris Evans may be returning to the MCU. <clears throat> Nearly two years after Evans's Steve Rogers passed on the shield of Captain America to Anthony Mackie's Sam Wilson in Avengers Endgame, and stating quite firmly that his time as Cap was over, it seems that the winds of change may be forming. Deadline reported that their sources claim Evans would return in a supporting role in at least one film with a possible second one on the horizon. The situation would be similar to what Robert Downey Jr. did after Iron Man 3, which is joining films like Captain America Civil War, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, and the Avengers films, but never a solo franchise. Um, With The Falcon and the Winter Soldier set to release on Disney Plus on March 19th, starring two Steve Rogers adjacent characters... Mackie Sam Wilson and Sebastian Stan's Bucky Barnes, the addition of these rumors makes the anticipation for that series and the future of the MCU at large all the more fascinating. However, Evans downplayed the news on Twitter, saying, news to me, with a shrug emoji. However, this has been a tried-and-true tactic for the extremely secretive Marvel Studios. A recent example would be Tatiana Maslany outright denying rumors of her casting as Jennifer Walters' She-Hulk, only to have the news confirmed a few weeks later by Marvel boss Kevin Feige during Disney Investor Day. On the prospect of the Rogers' return, Anthony Mackie said, You know, I've heard that. Like, I've seen that, and look, Chris is my boy, so if they're getting the band back together, I'll be very happy with that. What say you, Dave? You know, uh, I'm not sure how to feel about this one, actually. Um, On the one hand, I adore uh, Chris Evans' portrayal of Steve Rogers. Um, It's fantastic. It's pitch-perfect casting, uh, and really took me by surprise when he was initially cast, uh, since I primarily knew him at the time as, you know, the Human Torch in... Uh, sort of middling Fantastic Four movies. But he is he's the perfect uh, Steve Rogers. On the other hand, I'm worried a little bit because we haven't even had a chance to see Sam Wilson as Captain America yet. It seems a foregone conclusion that this is where Falcon and the Winter Soldier is headed on Disney+. Sam Wilson's tenure as Captain America was really good in the comics. You know, he, he deserves a chance to shine on the big screen too, not just on Disney+. And I'd hate for Sam Wilson's tenure to be limited to a TV series. And when the MCU returns to the big screen with a new Avengers movie or something, suddenly, you know, Evans is back to reclaim the mantle. I think that's that's a little tone deaf, you know, not taking advantage of the storytelling opportunities provided by an African-American Captain America and swapping him out on the big screen immediately for his white predecessor. I don't know, man. I think they need to uh, tread carefully with this one. So, so yeah, more Chris, Chris Evans is good by me, but let's not deprive Sam Wilson of a chance to shine as Captain America on the big screen first. Yeah, I'm kind of of the same mindset. Um, I read a little bit of of one of the volumes of of Sam's Captain America, and Steve did show up, albeit as like the super aged state. Uh, this is the part where like the cosmic cube had like 
like undone like the anti-aging portion of the super soldier serum or whatever so he was just like regular regular old steve rogers and it was a very much a supporting role so i I don't think they're going to go that way because you know it's one thing to have the one scene where chris evans is like super aged but i i don't think that that's a a a thing that you want to continue with like for substantial amounts of time. Um, So I, I, I'm pretty similar along that. Maybe if he's a supporting character or it's a cameo thing, or some people have even speculated like uh, an infinity stone series where you see him going back and putting them back in, in their proper time, which would play into an interesting situation on Vormir where he uh, is reunited with the Red Skull. That would be interesting to see. So uh, I, I'm, I'm along the same lines as you. I, I really want Sam to have his his time to shine, especially with how kind of like secretive uh, they have been about the Falcon and Winter Soldier series. We haven't seen a whole lot. We haven't seen him in uniform at all as Captain America. Um, so I, I really just want to let this breathe a little bit. And, you know, with the pandemic delaying everything, um, you, know, you know, we haven't had the time to appreciate Sam. I know it's been like two years since Endgame almost, but we not really in like, you know, MCU time because we haven't seen him on the screen since. Now, there has been a leak of uh, an action figure, a toy apparently that was making the rounds on social media recently uh of a um a sam wilson action figure that is sam wilson captain america based on falcon and winter soldier so that's kind of why i'm saying it's it's most likely a foregone conclusion that that's where this is headed and the uniform that leaked if you know if true if accurate is very close to his look um as captain america in the comic books so I'm, i'm really excited to see that so again, you know, Chris Evans, you know, I love the guy and I love his portrayal of Steve Rogers, but I hope that they don't bring him back in a way that undermines the Sam Wilson Captain America tenure. Yeah, and I think, and we've touched on things like this in recent episodes. It's, I feel like it, it would be, if they don't do this right, if they're not careful, it would be taking a big step backwards and it would be kind of a reduction in character growth. So uh, I, I really hope if this is indeed true and if it's something that they're planning, I really hope that they're careful with it. All right, Dave, so you're talking about a new television series that's in production. What do you have for us? You know, I I can't help it. I'm a Vertigo fanatic. I miss that imprint from DC so much. It's not even funny. And so anytime that something uh, arises that has a connection with Vertigo, I'm right there. Uh, Why the Last Man is one special comic book series. It's a post-apocalyptic science fiction story written by Brian K. Vaughan with art by Pia Guerra. Uh, It ran at DC imprint Vertigo from 2002 through 2008. It ran for 60 issues and received three Eisner Awards and very much deserved. The series follows Yorick Brown and his pet capuchin monkey Ampersand, the only males who survived the death of all males across the globe. There's a lot to unpack in this series, including gender relations, feminism, extremism, institutional failures, and of course the impact of what appears to be a global pandemic, very timely right now. The book's writing is sharp as attack, the art is absolutely beautiful, it's the perfect meeting of word and art. And there have been several attempts to adapt the series as both a a movie and a television series. And the latter seems to finally be happening. There have been recently a series of tweets by people involved in the production. 
that indicate that uh, things are picking up, although COVID had apparently gotten in the way of working on the series. Um, actress and playwright Eliza Clark is set to serve as showrunner. She will also pen the first two episodes, which will be, which will be directed by Louise Friedberg. In fact, it has been announced that the entire series will be directed by women. Uh, the series will eventually premiere on FX on Hulu. To say that I'm hyped about this series would be an understatement. You know, I, as I've said many times, adore the output at DC's Vertigo imprint. And the fact that it's defunct is, to me, almost a crime against creativity. To me, Vertigo always meant quality, mature writing, and excellent art. And I miss it a great deal. A chance to revisit this excellent series in a live-action television series is exactly what the doctor ordered, and I cannot wait to see it. Yeah, I'm super excited about this, and and it just reminds me that I have so many comics on my to-read list, uh, Why the Last Man being one of them, and I also, Brian K. Vaughn, have to go back and, and read more Saga, because I read the first couple of issues of that, enjoyed it immensely. Um, it's just really out there and wild and super sci-fi, and, and it's right up my alley, so I, I've got a lot to read. Now that X-Men is out of the way, um, I, I've got some clear lanes ahead of me, but I, I'm super excited about this, particularly the fact that um, it's going to be directed by women. I think it's an interesting um, and, and proper way to, to you know, tell this story. Um, and the fact that it's going to be on FX on Hulu. Um, almost everything that I've seen from FX has been just perfect for me. I already recommended what we do in the shadows. That was amazing. Um, so Legion has been great. Um, so FX on Hulu has just been cranking out hit after hit after hit. And it's right on the, the vibe of, of what we should be looking for. So uh, I've got some, I've got some reading homework to do uh, while we're waiting on this one to be finalized and produced. And I will freely admit, man, I'm, I'm kind of jealous of you uh, being able to sit down and read why the last man for the first time, I tell you, you're in for a treat. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, wonder woman, 1984, was it good? Bad? Meh? Let's find out. We'll be right back. And we're back. Now it's time to finally talk Wonder Woman 1984, DC's newest film that hit theaters and, of course, HBO Max. Chris and I each have selected three things we liked and three things we disliked about the movie. We'll try to alternate through these thoughts to figure out how we actually feel about this movie. Chris, let's go. What is one thing that you enjoyed about Wonder Woman 1984? Two words, Pedro Pascal. I mean, the guy is on fire. Between the Mandalorian and now seeing him as Maxwell Lord, uh, one of my favorite characters from Game of Thrones, pour one out for the Red Viper. Um, still not over that one. The dude is a powerhouse and he is quickly ascending to what I consider to be like an A-list star or, or what he should be. Like that's his trajectory for me because his presence in this film was absolutely like magnetic. You could not look away from the screen when he when he was in a scene like I, I'm particularly thinking to the, the scene. Um, but by the way, full spoilers here, the the full the scene uh, where he is in the Oval Office with the president, who I assume was supposed to be Reagan, um, was, was a bit of a weird casting, um, but we'll get there. Um, but where he is like in the face of the president and he's sweating profusely and his body is deteriorating, like it's just 
one of the best portrayals of a villain that I've seen in a long time in a superhero movie. So Pedro Pascal was my overarching favorite thing about this movie. And I want to cast him in everything. The dude is just amazing. Yeah. You know, I like the cast uh, in this movie in general. Um, but Pascal has grown on me a lot, uh, even just from his role in The Mandalorian. He's tremendously talented. I can't say that this version of Maxwell Lord is my favorite simply because, you know, well, it's Maxwell Lord. The character, uh, if you're familiar with uh, him in the DC comic books, has a long, complex, and interesting history in the comics. And and here, it's a little reductive. There is just basically the I want oil guy. And although there's more to the character, n- none of the nuances are really Maxwell Lord. Um, Pascal, though, in his portrayal of this particular version of the character is fantastic. I wish the movie would have given him even more to work with. Um, Seeing some of the the complexities of the comic book Maxwell Lord on the big screen would have been nice here, but uh, that that particular problem I think rests solely with the script. Pascal himself was absolutely incredible. And see, like uh, it's interesting you say that because that's kind of enlightening to me. I don't know any of the the character background in history, but I felt like even some of the strongest scenes for me were the the relationship with his son. Um, Alistair and and like particularly that that last scene where like they they get back together and they're they're reunited and you know he he does all of this it started like where he just wanted to provide for his son and and be a hero to his son and then he lost his way and then he eventually was brought back to that like it was just a really really emotional scene for me you know because i can relate as a father you want to be able to give to your kids and you want to be able to provide and and you want to be a role model for them and and, you know so it's like that that balancing act of of you know doing the right thing by your kids yeah absolutely um like i said i mean the the character is, is good and it's fantastically portrayed but it's not maxwell lord for the most part and and i guess you know, when you when you whip out a name like Maxwell Lord and put him in a Wonder Woman movie, there's all sorts of context for fans of the character and for fans of Wonder Woman that uh, you know there's there's a certain level of expectation that was simply you know not met. If they would have not called this character Maxwell Lord, I think uh, it would have been you know much less of a problem. All right, Dave. So first up on your like list, what do you have? The tone of the movie, actually. Uh, I've made no secret of the fact that I've grown weary of dark, dreary, and desaturated superhero movies. You know, the Zack Snyder school of comic book adaptations is simply not for me. I read superhero comics for fun. I love the bright costumes, the -the over-the-top action, the epic stories. But above all, I love superhero comics for their optimism and their hope. And the good news is that Wonder Woman 1984 has that. The colors are bright. The hero is heroic and the story is epic. The tone of the movie is just right. It reminds me a lot of Superman the movie uh, with uh, Christopher Reeve. It's lengthy and it's not wall-to-wall superheroics. The movie concerns itself with its characters, uh, its relationships, and it doesn't mind to meander a little bit in order to achieve some character work. Now, there are some unfavorable comparisons we can make to Superman the movie too, um, but overall, I like the tone of this movie. It's a step in the right direction for DC movies, much like Shazam was. There's heart here and an actual color palette. Imagine that. Most importantly, to me at least, there's hope and a belief in the inherent goodness of the world. And given the state of our world right now, I can always use a little more hope. Yeah, I would totally agree with this. And this 
borderline touches on on my second like of the film, which I'll get more in depth to when we get there. But I I, I totally agree with you, and you know, and I I think I've said this on the podcast before is like uh, a show like Gotham, where it brought me in a, in, when I was in a mental state when that show came out, that, that was very fragile. My mental health was not in the best place. And then to, to just watch like a show that centered around villainy and it almost like it glorified the villains and, and, and their origin stories without a lot of hope. Um, it, it, it really shook me. So I, I had to, for my own health, I had to move away from that show and I couldn't watch it anymore. And, and so like seeing a lot of iterations of this dark and gritty and, it, it, it can really put me in a bad place. So I also opt for the optimistic stuff because it's that escapism. You want like the, like the, the good guy to win at the end of the day and, and to prevail over the villain. And so I, I would totally second uh, your sentiments there. And I will say, I don't necessarily think there's no room for, for darkness in superhero movies if it's appropriate for the character. Uh, you know, Batman in particular lends itself to that kind of storytelling. And, and that's, probably where he functions best ultimately although there are alternate interpretations but a character like wonder woman a character like superman these are you know bright optimistic hopeful characters and and seeing wonder woman uh placed firmly in that sort of situation in that sort of movie uh was definitely pleasing yeah and and so i i think and i agree with that my my main issue with a lot of the recent Batman content that we've gotten is that it's I think it's darkness for darkness sake and grittiness for grittiness sake, because, um, you know, what I grew up with Batman is, yes, he lives and then he inhabits Gotham, this dark and, you know, corrupt place, but he wants it to be a better place. So he's a driving force for good and justice and, and all of this thing, despite the world that you know, that he lives in. And I think that a lot of that has been lost in, in current versions of the character. And there's, you, it's really hard to see the light in the darkness. Yeah, you know what? I can agree with that. And I'll also say that if you're worried about, you know, the Batman content we've gotten in recent years, DC Comic Books has you covered based on its April solicitations. There's like 18 Batman related comic <laughs> books coming out that month. So maybe we can find something that fits uh, a little better to what we're actually looking for out of a character. <laughs> All right, Chris, let's go ahead and flip it around and see uh, your first dislike. What did you not like about Wonder Woman 1984? So my first dislike seems to be one of the most popular uh, criticisms of the film. And for me, it was not enough fleshing out of that Diana and Barbara relationship. Um, and, and this just seemed like maybe it's too many villains in the plot uh, of, of a comic book movie, which has happened before. But I think it was just like they just didn't pay enough attention to it, pay enough detail to it, because I, at the end of the day, I didn't buy their friendship. And you know, we talk about Obi-Wan and Anakin not buying their friendship, but this was, you know, within the context of one film. It, I think even a small tweak like at the beginning of the film where Diana is included in the group of people who does not even notice Barbara, even though they've worked side by side. I think if you were to tweak that a little bit and they had some sort of relationship or, or establish friendship beforehand, it would, it would have gone a, a long way. But, but the fact that she went from a nobody that she didn't recognize to I'm supposed to care about this turn 
it, it it really fell flat. Um, and it just wasn't enough fleshing out of that relationship. Like, like Stephanie Williams said in, in our, uh, our previous episode, like they went to dinner one time and, you know, now it's supposed to be this really meaningful thing. So I think, you know, it just wasn't enough Barbara, Diana friendship for me. You know, I tend to agree with that as well. In the comics, the two characters have a complex relationship and a really long history with each other, uh, both as friends and as opponents. And the movie, although super long, I mean, the sucker was two and a half hours long, it really neglected the Diana Barber relationship. You know, I will touch on this later, but I think it would almost have been better to omit Steve Trevor from the movie completely and then focus instead have you know on the friendship slowly developing between Diana and, and Barbara so that once Barbara betrays her stands against her uh, you know um it, it it kind of creates a whole different arc for Diana in the movie um the idea here is that she's kind of cutting herself off from people and the world and then the idea could be that meeting Barbara opens her up and then the betrayal causes her to shut herself off from people again to preserve the also important continuity of the Snyder movies because she's supposed to be you know hiding out by the time Batman and Superman Batman Batman versus Superman comes along um but you know props to Kristen Wiig who was really good um but yeah there was definitely um sort of a a a a feeling to this whole setup that it was rushed. And in a movie that is two and a half hours long, I don't think anything should really feel rushed. Yeah, I totally agree. I just didn't want to step on your, on your, on one of your future points, but it, I mean, like if, if you would have taken all of that energy and you would have focused it into their relationship, I think it would have, I think it would have been super harmonious. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally echo that. All right, Dave. So what is first up on your dislike list? <laughs> you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come across as almost vindictive at this point, but it is the the Zack Snyder of it all. Um, my biggest problem with the movie is that it has to respect the continuity of Batman v Superman and Justice League. Zack Snyder made some pretty unfortunate choices in Batman v Superman to me, but the biggest by far was establishing that Diana had been in hiding out of the limelight since World War One. Diana, much like Superman, is an inspirational figure. She leads by example. One of my favorite Wonder Woman runs in the comic books was written by Greg Rucka. In his run, she actually is an official ambassador from Themyscira to man's world. And as such, she leads a very public life. She writes books. She makes public appearances. And she very much tries to inspire people with her example. The ambassadorship suits her character really perfectly. In Wonder Woman 1984, there are so many missed opportunities because she constantly has to quote-unquote hide. You know, in the mall, in the opening scene there, she has to destroy surveillance cameras after she's already been seen by the cameras and everybody else because they're trying to preserve this continuity with Batman v Superman. But the worst offender to me is the climax. She should be speaking to the world directly, revealing herself and inspiring them directly to renounce their wishes. This should have been a great, huge moment for Diana, for Wonder Woman as a character, to show how she can inspire people. And the fact that she has to do this more from the shadows, so to speak, robs her of this moment and much of its impact. 
The fact that the movie had to serve the continuity established by Zack Snyder basically hampered its impact from the word go. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it comes down, it comes off as downright goofy. I, I mean, when she puts her finger to the lips of the little girl, like she's going to keep a secret while all of these adults are around, like it's so, it's so ridiculous. And and the fact, one of the most unrealistic things about the film I thought was when she's sitting alone at dinner and she's not being harassed by any man um, or, or being haggled or, or like she could just sit in a restaurant alone and just like be low key. Like it, it, it just, it's unrealistic. You can't like be an unmasked superhero and, and not be known and, and not be recognized for 80 or 90 years. Like it, it's not possible. Like, so it's just an unrealistic and unfair expectation to throw on a, a property like wonder woman. Like it's just, it's ridiculous. And it ultimately damages the movie. Trying to maintain this continuity does more harm than good. I wished in a lot of ways they would have just decided to jettison it right then and there and just make a Wonder Woman movie that that allows her to step in the limelight to inspire people the way she does in the comic books. Uh, huge misstep in my book. The worst part of it is, is because the, Wonder, the first Wonder Woman film and Gal Gadot at large are the, some of the strengths of the DC film universe, the DCEU, if you will. And so in to hamper that in favor of something like Batman versus Superman and Justice League, two are the less, two of the, you know, the least well-received. So you're like taking from the best to save the worst is just a stupid notion in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I can totally agree with that. All right, Chris, now that we've griped for a little while, let's go ahead and talk about some likes again. What is something that you enjoyed about Wonder Woman 1984? Well, you touched on this on your first like, but uh, I'm going to go a little bit deeper. I love the central themes and the symbolism. I thought it was very, very interesting and, and super inspirational. My, I absolutely adored the fact that the truth conquers all. No matter what else, no matter what evil schemes, no matter what desires, base desires, carnal wishes, the truth conquers all. And, the, and, and you know, the symbolism of the lasso of truth in that climactic moment, I thought that was quite powerful. I, I see your point and I, I agree that like she had to like do it from the shadows and, and do it through Maxwell Lord um, is a bit frustrating, but the fact that that symbolism of the truth conquering all was very, very powerful for me. Um, and I also thought that it was a really interesting, um, like social commentary on the 1980s of greed and capitalism at its worst and like consumerism and like all these wishes coming true. And then like Basically, the world ate itself alive, this cannibalism, because of this insatiable greed. I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, and then to be conquered by truth was was really on point for me. You know, you and I seem to be very much in the same wavelength when it comes to this movie. To me, Wonder Woman at her best in the comic books is really the paragon of truth. And I find that this is really her best role. Uh in any of the stories, when, when she's focused on truth, um, even when it, when it comes to how she relates to other heroes, at her best, she's squarely focused on the truth. So the focus of this story on truth was spot on to me. 
And yes, an 80s set movie that explores the excesses of greed is pretty much perfect too. I mean, the, it's the 80s, a decade of excess, of capitalism run rampant, any criticism of, of, of greed, you know, well, it finds its perfect setting in the 1980s, I think. I do believe the overall theme would have been better served with a different role for Diana herself. I think she feels a little disconnected from the overall thrust of the narrative because she's basically shunted aside as like this, this museum worker, basically. Um, and I think there would have been better places for her, a, a better backdrop for her character uh, when, when the movie starts out. But again, we have to, you know, maintain this continuity with, with the Snyder movies. Um, I think that part of that is also kind of the Jeff Johns of it all. He he was involved in writing the script again. Um, the perception in DC movies that somehow, you know, Jeff Johns' interpretations of characters are the be-all, end-all. I've never been a huge fan of his take on Wonder Woman. You know, I'll, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I think if she would have been like an ambassador or something, like she was established in Greg Ruckus' run, I think she would have been much better positioned to be somebody who is, you know, looking for the truth in this situation, not just, you know, on some kind of personal quest to figure out what happened with, with, you know, Steve, but, you know, a, a larger quest for truth um, for as a representative of her people. I think that would have been um, probably a step in the right direction to make these, these themes pop even more. You know, you know, it feels a little bit awkward to to make this observation and this criticism, and I would love to have like a female voice to bounce this off of. So maybe we can like do like a an amendment here if we can find a female guest to to comment on this and like their perception of this. But it feels uncomfortable that in a, in a Wonder Woman film, it feels like Diana is subjugated in so many instances from the men in the film. Like she has to speak through Maxwell Lord at the end. Um, she is just pining away for Steve Trevor for 70 years and can't do anything without her man. Um, and, and, you know, to just serve from the shadows and like take, let all of these male protagonists, um, you know, take the cake and, and, and serve these central roles while she has to be in secret. I think it's, I think it's uncomfortable and I think it's, uh, you know, a shame, but maybe that's intentional. I don't know. If it was intentional, I think it was a poor choice overall. Um, yeah, I, 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 again, you're correct. We could probably, uh, really use a female voice here, but just as a fan of the character, uh, she's supposed to be, you know, inspiring, uh, aspirational, uh, and and seeing her always basically play second fiddle to the male characters is awkward for the characters, to say the least. I can totally agree with that. All right, Dave, let's try and get positive again. We're, we're getting dragged down. What is your second like of the film? The opening flashback. I'm just going to say it. The Amazons are awesome, period. Despite my disdain for the uh, miniseries Amazon's Attack, I generally really enjoy <laughs> the whole setup of the Amazons, of Themyscira, the whole thing. Um, I really enjoy that in the comic books. Uh, it's such a fascinating society, the way it's set up, um, and, and a lot of fun to read about. So some of my favorite parts of the first Wonder Woman movie are actually the scenes that took place on Themyscira. Wonder Woman 1984 does not spend a lot of time with the Amazons. All we get is that opening, and I think that's actually to the detriment of the movie. 
And, you know, thankfully, there's a fantastic opening sequence that returns us to Diana's childhood. You know, there's been some statements floating around online that Warner was interested in cutting this part uh, and starting with the mall action sequence. And I think that would have been a huge mistake. I think we needed this reminder of where Wonder Woman came from and her cultural background. Um, there was there was a lot of visual fun to be had here. And with a movie that is fairly light on action overall, I think this scene uh, you know, got, got the audience pumped for the movie. I would argue that the entire opening scene had me more enthralled than the rest of the movie. I wish there would have been significantly more Amazon scenes. Again, this is one of those things that I think holds back this movie is this this continuity with with the Snyder movies. You know, I can't think of a good reason why there could have not been uh, a resolution to the idea that Wonder Woman can never go home again. And instead, we could have, you know, some some scenes of her as an adult, you know, maybe going to her mother, you know, asking for advice with this problem. Uh, perhaps even getting the armor for, you know, from her mother uh, that she wears at the end. I think we needed more Amazons in the movie. I, that's one of the things that makes Wonder Woman a incredibly unique character is her background. Um, so I think not including that uh, more was a misstep. I had to really love that opening scene. It, it's probably the best scene in the whole movie. Now, when you say Amazon's attack, I can't get the image out of my head of of Jeff Bezos and his Lex Luthor doppelganger ness. So now I'm thinking like this fan fiction of where you know uh, we have some weird storyline where Amazon attacks. But um, <laughs> I, I will totally agree uh, on the opening flashback. Um, it, it was a bit like, oh, uh, it, it was a bit of a surprise for me. Like, oh, we're going back to Themyscira. Like, what's going to happen here? But I think the most powerful thing to come over that to, to come out of that scene is it serves that central theme that I referenced earlier of the truth winning out no matter what. And, and her mother, no matter even as like resourceful as her taking that shortened path was um, where a lot of parents would have been like, Hey, good job. You know, like you improvised or whatever. And it just drove home that point of the truth. You cheated. You can't win. That's it. End of it. I don't care what happened. Nope. The the truth conquers all. And and that, you know, overwhelming. I think without if you were to cut that scene, I don't think the ending would have packed the punch that it did because you set that up as a precedent and then you drove it back home. It was a perfect bookend there. I agree. But I'll stand by what I said. More Amazons in the next Wonder Woman, please. Let's go back to Themyscira. Let's resolve that problem. Let's go ahead and have her have some contact with her people. I think uh, we're missing out on uh, tremendous storytelling opportunities by shunting her away from her people like that. For sure. All right, Chris. This was our positive round. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Let's go ahead and hit something a little more negative. What is your next dislike? And this, okay, so this might just be a personal taste. I don't know. But the whole 80s shtick is lost on me. I feel like we're at like a bad costume party for large swaths of the film. Some of it was tastefully done. um, And, you know, it felt like, you know, I was watching an old eighties film, but then, you know, when you get into like the leg warmers and the yoga outfits, it just felt really cartoony and goofy. Um, And I I know that some of the, the Steve Trevor stuff was, was quite popular with some people and uh, you know, a, a, a nice nostalgia hit, 
but some a lot of it for me just just missed uh so uh the 80s shtick was one of my dislikes you know what i'm gonna go ahead and disagree with you i love the 80s shtick i don't think it was always necessarily perfectly executed um but I have a huge fondness for a lot of the cultural trappings of the 80s and seeing those revisited, you know, in stuff like Wonder Woman 1984 and stuff like Stranger Things. Yeah, it does tickle my nostalgia bone. And I am, I am it, it considered my kryptonite. You know, you hit me with some 80s stuff. I'm probably going to be interested. You know, 80s, car- 80s cartoons still rank as my favorites. I'll fight anybody on that. The 80s had the best cartoons. There's some really good stuff to come in the 90s. But man, just a glut of awesome in the 80s, I'll never forget. I actually think uh, there was a missed opportunity with the 80s shtick, and that's the soundtrack. I thought the soundtrack was seriously lacking in 80s, 80s tunes. There was never a, a real visual 80s theme, I mean, an auditory 80s theme that ran through this movie. You know, a soundtrack can have a huge impact on the tone of a movie. I mean, see Guardians of the Galaxy. The soundtrack needed more 80s tunes to really establish the setting, not just visually, but but also, you know, auditorially. And so in the end, besides the greed is bad message and its connection with the 1980s, I, I think the movie was in some ways, particularly on the soundtrack, not 80s enough. You know what? That's really interesting. And if they would have done that, maybe it would have tied it together. Maybe that's why it didn't work for me is it felt kind of disjointed. You know, I think back to like m- movies from the eighties that I, that I really, really enjoy my favorite, probably Beverly, the Beverly Hills cop one and two, not three. We don't talk about three. No, we um, don't. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, like karate kid. Um, I'm we not, also don't I'm talk not, about three on that one either. <laughs> <laughs> um, also not like one of the Cobra Kai kids, they're villains, they're bad guys. I'm, I'm not interested. So don't, 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 you know, don't, uh, re- you know, distribute them as the good guys and they were misunderstood. Nah. Um, But, you know, the best things about those movies is the soundtrack is just as iconic and just as identifiable. I mean, like the Beverly Hills cop theme song is is one of the best things about the film, you know, right up there with, you know, Eddie Murphy's ad-libbing. So I think if you would have had a carefully and craftfully chosen soundtrack, like the Guardians of the Galaxy, I think it would have tied everything together and it would have made sense. But as, as it stands, it's just a little bit uh, disjointed. It feels like we're cosplaying. You know what? I'll give you that one. I, I can agree with that. Yeah, the music would have gone a long way to to improve the 80s-ness of it all. Then again, I'm, you know, I made no secret of it. Our first episode, how many music clips did we have in our first episode? I'm a big music nerd. All right, Dave, we're staying on the negative. What is your second dislike of the film? I think I'm going to pee in some people's breakfast cereal with this one, but you know, it's going to have to be said. Uh, Steve Trevor did not need to return in this movie. Um, I'm not saying that I'm opposed to Steve Trevor returning, but in this movie, it was mishandled. It's by far the most mishandled part of the movie. I simply do not understand why it was necessary for Steve Trevor to return in another person's body. It actively robs the movie of emotional impact. And it also never really factors into the movie's story in a major or interesting way that he's in another person's body. You know, in addition, it raises all sorts of moral issues. I mean, Steve and Diana, it's implied, spent the night together. They they literally use another man's body to do so. And that raises all sorts of issues of consent. Trevor also runs into danger several times, which clearly endangers another human being's life, you know, because he's hijacked this guy's body. 
if he would have been in communication with the guy, if it would have you know added an interesting element to the story, that would have been a different situation. But as it is, it, it doesn't work. You know, if Steve had to return, and I would argue he really didn't need to, but if he had to return, he should have been plucked out of the time stream moments before his death in the first movie. Then Diana giving up her wish would have meant literally sending him back to die a horrible death. The drama is heightened. His sacrifice echoes his sacrifice in the first movie, and the impact would have been bigger. But, you know, here's a thought. Did he really need to return? No. I didn't really think he served a clear purpose in the story. All this time spent on Steve and Diana should have been spent instead building up the friendship between Barbara and Diana. This would have made the two friends uh, eventually turning on each other much more impactful. So, Steve, you're the weakest link. Goodbye. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. And we touched on it earlier, but like, it, it just feels like it, you know, is a, a disservice to a strong female character that she hangs her hopes and wishes on this man finally returning. And, you know, it would have been like so much easier and more synchronous if they would have just like had Steve himself, like the whole body snatcher ghost thing was just so weird and so uncomfortable um and not only does it sacrifice the possible time spent on the barbara diana relationship it also creates this weird like team-up situation where every action scene she is hampered and like not being able to be the star of the show because they cut to him like smashing dudes with vases and stuff like just get out of here. Like he turned him into this like goofy sidekick in every action scene. And instead of focusing on her, it's a wonder woman movie. It's like wonder woman and Steve. Like, so I just felt like it was a disservice to Diana herself and she didn't have her full time to shine because, Oh, we need the man to be here. Yeah. You know, it's also um, quite fascinating to me that um, the way this whole thing is set up uh, in the story with this, this wish, fulfillment thing is that in order to have their wish granted some the, the person has to give up what they love most basically um something that's most important to them and wonder woman loses her powers of all the things in the world that's the thing she cares most about that's the thing she loses in exchange for steve trevor is her powers she doesn't care about other people she doesn't care about you know world peace the thing she loses is her powers. I thought that was really a, a misstep in the characterization of Diana. And again, it comes right back down to, you know, she needs her man back. I just, that element of the movie just did not work for me. Let's go ahead and get that third like. What do you, what did you still like about this movie? Uh, the third and final thing that I liked about this movie was the end credit scene with spoiler alert, full spoilers, Linda Carter, uh, you know, returning, to the franchise, but as the mysterious war Asteria, I thought that was just a beautiful, like, you know, crescendo and a way to close it. So I think it landed on, although it was a brief high note, I think that was a beautiful, you know, kind of tribute to Linda Carter and everything she did to lay the groundwork for the character. Yeah, I love the scene too, but you know what? I'm going to go ahead and gripe for a second. I wished it would have actually factored into the movie itself rather than being an end credit scene. Seeing Linda Carter again as an Amazon was fantastic. Why not have her interact with Diana? Why not have her deliver the armor to Diana or have Diana have to seek her out and borrow the armor for her from her or something like that? 
I think that would have been a great stand up and cheer moment within the movie rather than something that's just thrown in as an afterthought. But yeah, otherwise, love that scene. Yep, totally agree. I can't disagree with that. Um, Dave, what is next up on your list? Okay, so my final uh, like is simply the cast, particularly Gal Gadot, but the cast in general. Gal Gadot is some of the finest casting in the current batch of DC-based movies. She's pitch perfect as Diana. Uh, I adore her performance. You know, she certainly captures the visual beauty of Diana, but she also captures her grace, her dignity, her commitment to helping others, her compassion. Diana is a larger-than-life character. She is, in some incarnations, literally a demigoddess. And who knows how, but Gal Gadot embodies her perfectly. I don't think the movie necessarily gives her the best platform to flex her acting muscles, but I enjoy her performance tremendously. She's really magnetic on screen. In general, just though the casting is really good in this movie, we've talked about, you know, Pedro Pascal, and I really enjoyed Kristen Wiig's performance. Uh, None of the failures of the movie rest on the cast. I think they're pitch perfect. And there I say, I know Zack Snyder was involved in the casting of Gal Gadot. That might be his best contribution to DC movies that he has made. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I feel it was not... It was by no means like Attack of the Clones level bad dialogue, but like some of the dialogue that was written for her did not do her any service. And I think she did the best that she could with it. Um, some of the, some of the lines were just a little bit cringy, but I, I think her presence um, was just over overwhelmed the shortcomings in, in the script. Um, but but for sure, I you know, even though I have problems with the idea of Steve Trevor returning, I think Chris Pine is is magnificent. And, and uh, I really miss Captain Kirk in the Calvin timeline. Um, Kristen Wiig really surprised me. Um, I was really pleasantly surprised because I'm a huge fan of her comedic work. And to see her in a serious role, I had my suspicions. And I said this on our fandom episode, but I, I was a little bit skeptical. Uh, but intrigued and you know I, I was really really impressed with that and then this is another point as well and you know I've given Pedro Pascal his flowers but this is another you know you know I guess like a dig as to why we should have more or, or criticism as to why we should have had more Themyscira I think you know Robin Wright and Connie Nielsen you know in in the roles of the Themyscirans like we sh- they're perfect as well like we should have had more of that yeah, I totally agree with that. Let's go negative one more time, Chris. What is your final negative point? Uh, some of the special effects, uh, particularly like the running scenes with Diana, they didn't look good. Like, I, I don't know what it was. They looked like amateurish. Like, the, particularly the one that comes to mind right when I think of it is the one where they're in uh, Egypt and she's like running down that highway it's very clear that you can see it's front of a green screen. It's not great special effects. So just took me out of it a little bit. Um, the running looked a little bit goofy. Um, and you know, there, there were, it's funny because there were some parts of that action sequence that were really, really cool when they flipped like the big, uh, tank over. That was awesome. But you know, something as simple as like running, it, it just it was a really strange that they weren't able to nail that. You know, uh, I'm I'm not nearly as picky with special effects as long as the movie really draws me in. 
Some questionable special effects are forgivable as long as the movie's good. I, I love Doctor Who with a red hot glowing passion, and that show is nothing but questionable special effects. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the problem with, with Wonder Woman 1984 is that the movie is a little slower paced with few action set pieces. So when those scenes do appear, those small missteps feel much more noticeable. Um, didn't bother me that much, but I'll, I'll agree it, it was noticeable in a few scenes. All right, Dave, what is your final dislike of the film? <sighs> yeah, all right, let's go there. I'm tired of the jealous nerd breaks bad trope. You know, if your movie's villain recalls some of the worst in superhero movie history, maybe rethink your approach. Now, don't get me wrong, I've already praised uh, Kristen Wiig's performance. It was very good. The writing on Barbara Minerva, though, was not. How often do we have to see a socially awkward nerd break bad and turn into a villain? What is the obsession of superhero movies with making nerds the bread and butter of the industry, the bad guys? You know, Barbara has echoes of, of Jim Carrey in Batman Forever, of Jamie Foxx in Amazing Spider-Man 2, of, you know, freaking Poison Ivy in Batman and Robin. This is not good. Those are some of the worst villains in superhero movies, period. You know, Greg Rucka has done an amazing job with Barbara Minerva in the comic books. Look to his runs and, and use that as inspiration. But quit the tired, jealous, nerd, breaks bad trope. It was tired and played out 30 years ago. Do better. Yeah, and it, it's just like, like we're furthering this stereotype with nerds that like, they can't function in, you know, larger society. Like it was cartoonish and goofy the way that they like treated her, like the coworkers treated her. Like it, it felt like a bad rom-com from the late nineties, like, like a, she's all that type thing where like, Oh, you put big thick glasses on her. And then all of a sudden you take the glasses off and it's like this Clark Kent vibe that like, Oh, now she's awesome and gorgeous. And you put her in these like, fancy yoga pants and 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 heels and now she's amazing because that's all the girl needs to be attractive is heels like it, it, it was just it was so tired and and played out and bless Kristen wig's heart she was doing the best she could with it i i did feel that like when she finally the the one scene where she went back to the per the 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 drunk perp like that was super powerful and like I was a little bit scared in that scene, to be honest. Um, so that was super powerful. Um, I, I was not a fan of the, the whatever that outfit was before the final cheetah transformation. That was a really weird out, outfit choice. And the, and the eye black was a little weird, but like, yeah, so I, I'm right there with you. Like uh, we've seen this story before and it didn't work. So why would you revisit it? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, in the end, I think despite all all our misgivings, I overall had a very positive experience watching the movie. I understand it's a little slower paced, but, you know, so was Superman the movie. I understand that some of the elements were goofy, but, you know, so were the elements in Superman the movie. Let's not even talk about Lex Luthor and Otis. Um, ultimately, I, I think Wonder Woman 1984, despite its problems, was a step in the right direction primarily because of the tone. I think superhero movies should be bright, should be hopeful, and should have something to say uh, about the betterment of the world. And in those elements, at least, I think Wonder Woman 1984 succeeded. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I I actually like loved the film. Like I know that I had my criticisms of it, but you know, like oh, where where does the quote come from? I think it's a James Baldwin quote. It's like I I love this country, and when you love something, you're able to criticize it. So I like really enjoyed this film, and overall, I would even like you know say that I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I felt better after watching it, and I, one one more like that I meant to squeeze in here: the final fight scene with Cheetah. I liked it. I thought Cheetah looked cool at the end. Um, and, and I thought the final fight scene was pretty cool, but, but overall, like I will go and watch this again, you know, despite, you know, the few criticisms that I have of it. And you know, it, it was a fun movie. Um, it was uplifting and it made me feel good. And I'm, I'm hopeful and excited about the fil- future of DC films, you know, after watching this and I got to be honest, moving away from the Zack Snyder universe. Uh, I'm excited. Yeah, I think I can echo that. Well, that's it for Wonder Woman 1984. What did you think? Hit us up on social media and let us know. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and on Facebook at TheNerdByWord. After another quick break, we'll be back with some nerd commendations. Don't go anywhere. Seriously, stay. And we're back. Chris, nerd commendation time. What are you bringing to us today? All right, this is history in the making. I'm recommending an, a, a DC book. Like, what? what is what is going on? Okay, and I'm also staying on brand with a Wonder Woman book. But this is a very, very recent one. So my nerd commendation for this week is Future State Wonder Woman number one with words and art by Joelle Jones. I just love when a creator does the story and the art. That's just like amazing to me. Walt Simonson Thor. Like I, I, I just super geeked out about that. Like it's, this is your baby. Like we had Tom Scioli on, like he did all of that stuff with the Jack Kirby books. It's just fascinating to me. Like this is this passion project. Um, you also have fantastic colors by Jordi Belair. This is my first physical DC comic that I've ever read. Anything I've ever read of DC, the few and far between stuff that I've done for the pod or, you know, previously has all been digital. So this is the first physical DC comic that I've ever read. The Future State Initiative was incredibly intriguing to me, and I went a little bit too crazy with my purchases. My pull list, um, you know, made my arm muscles flex a little bit because I got a little too crazy. Of all the Future State books that I've read as of this time, this is by far the easiest one to jump right into. Um, the other ones are pretty convoluted with with timeline and continuity, and I'm you know just pretending that I understand what's going on as I'm reading. This one was a really really easy intro. Um, the design and the concept of Yara Floor immediately hooked me, and I've been waiting for this one to release for months. The art's incredible, and I find Yara to be incredibly likable, hilarious, and relatable because she's perfectly flawed. Like, she's impatient, she's sassy, she's moody, nasty, a prankster, but you're still rooting for her, like, the entire way. She's super, like, she's, like, there's a scene where she's waiting in line um, in the underworld to cross the river sticks and like she didn't bring any money to cross the river to pay the the ferryman so she like tries to reach over and steal somebody's money in front of her just because she doesn't have it like it's 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 crazy but like you can't help but love her jeff the pegasus may be my favorite new animal sidekick in comics there's like these great pages where she's just screaming for jeff as she's fighting the hydra uh, I'm incredibly excited to, I was incredibly excited to see the mythological tie-ins, uh, and to follow the story going forward. 
she's traveling to the underworld to save one of her Themyscira sisters. Like, what's how is that going to turn out? Um, I've also got uh, Future State Justice League and Future State Superman Wonder Woman on tap. So I, I'm just super excited about reading this book. And it's really like giving me like a paradigm shift. And, and I'm leaning towards reading a lot more DC content. You know, it's funny because this character came out of nowhere for me. I, I know uh, her design is fantastic and I was very much interested in the character immediately, but it's the characterization that I think really drives it home. She's just a delight, isn't she? I mean, <laughs> here's a character who was serving in the role of Wonder Woman, but she's not an idealized character. She's impatient. She's brash. She's funny. You know, so far, she's probably the best thing to come out of DC's Future State Initiative, and I've read a fair amount of it so far. I really hope uh, they find a way to introduce her in the quote-unquote present-day continuity in some way. I'd love to see her more fully integrated into the DCU. I think she has, you know, the potential to be a breakout star for DC, similar maybe to what Miss Marvel accomplished over at Marvel. Uh, there's still room for new characters, DC. Not everybody has to be Batman or Batman adjacent with your 18 books coming out in April. You know, I think I saw something where she was going to be in a Wonder Girl book post-Future State. So here's hoping. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I echo that. I would, I would really like to see what else they can do with the character. So far, delightful. All right, Dave, you have a pretty extensive nerd commendation for us this week. Dare I say it's never-ending? <laughs> you know, I too, I too am staying on brand here by talking about something that is very closely related to the 1980s. You know, over the last few years, the 1980s have had a bit, a bit of a moment, right? I mean, Wonder Woman 1984, sure, but Stranger Things, a new Blade Runner movie, two new Ghostbusters movies, the list goes on. On the most recent season of Stranger Things, they dropped a major reference to another 1980s mainstay, the movie The NeverEnding Story. It was a major part of the childhood of many kids growing up in the 80s. And as somebody who additionally grew up in Germany, there's something that loomed even larger in my life, and that's the original novel. The never-ending story, in German, Die unendliche Geschichte, is a fantasy novel by the German writer Michael Ende, and was first published in 1979. Bastian Bucks comes into the possession of a book called The Never-Ending Story. As he reads the book, he encounters a magical land in need of a savior, and he is shocked to discover that he is that savior, and he has to enter the world of the book. It's a pretty darn special novel to me. Uh, the movie does a somewhat decent job adapting the first part of the novel, but the sequels never quite managed to capture the rest of the story, or they downright ignored it in favor of an original and much, much worse story. The book is so much more than the movie. It's a meditation on, on transformation, on grief, on the power of our memories and how they shape us, and even on the act of creation and the power of imagination. It is without a doubt, to me at least, Ender's best book. And when it comes to German children's literature, it stands at the top. Like the best of all children's literature, it can be enjoyed by people of all ages. So my nerd commendation is for people to go and hunt down a copy of the English translation of the original never-ending story novel. I think you'll be shocked how good it is and how favorably it compares to the actual 1980s movie. So this is really, really interesting because I recently watched it, I want to say in the last year or two, the film, the first film for like the first time. I, it somehow escaped me as a kid. Uh, I was late. I was born in the late 80s. So most of my content was in the 90s. So um, 
yeah, so I, I really, really enjoyed it. And it was particularly, you know, emotionally impactful. The one scene that I immediately think of is when his horse dies. So like, I'm, I'm super, super intrigued. And, and it's just like the entire premise of the story is fascinating. It's like his live action, almost like virtual reality before virtual reality, like you're living this adventure. So I, I can't wait to dive in. And I will also say that I highly recommend, uh, you know, anybody who wants to pick up an English edition of this book to get the hardback edition, not the paperback. The hardback actually imitates the way the book was first published uh, in Germany, which is that it is actually printed in two different colors uh, rather than just in black ink. One color symbolizes the story of the book, the never-ending story that Bastion is reading. The other color symbolizes the quote-unquote real world that Bastion inhabits. And so when he actually transfers over into the story of the book, then his story also turns the color of the never-ending story. It's, uh, it's a fascinating device, actually, and they did not try to imitate that um, in the paperback English edition, which I think is a, is a huge misstep. Uh, it kind of takes away from the experience. So if uh, you're looking to pick this one up, uh, try to find the hardback edition, which actually has the colored printing in it. All right, well, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoy our podcast, please give us a rating or review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're available wherever podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and of course, YouTube. We also have our fancy schmancy website, nerdbyword.com. You can also find us on social media for the pod on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword, Facebook at the nerdbyword, or individually at that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. You can also check out Dave's freelance writing, including Tomb Raider, Thur- Tomb Raider Thursdays on thatnerddave.com. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>